Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is a Seven West Media podcast. Okay, I'm starting the recording now. Well, media freedom is at the core of our democracy. And the events of the last 48 hours... Tonight, hospitals and companies around the world held for ransom a computer virus paralyzing Britain's national... Australian federal police officers are this afternoon continuing to raid the ABC's Sydney headquarters. In the world of espionage, the question remains, who are the shadow brokers? The group There are criminal allegations being investigated, and we cannot ignore them. We are duty-bound to conduct these investigations. Privacy to us is a human right. It's a civil liberty. You know, this is like freedom of speech and freedom of the press, and privacy is right up there. Australia's anti-encryption laws have only been in place six months, but they're already drawing international criticism, including from renowned human rights lawyer Amal Clooney. The laws were introduced in the battle against criminals, but experts fear personal privacy could be collateral damage. So what do the laws mean for you? And the phone you're probably listening to this podcast on right now. I asked Rihanna Pfefferkorn, cybersecurity expert at Stanford University. All right, let's get started. How big an issue is privacy in the smartphone era? I would say that the issue of privacy when it comes to smartphones should be something that should be very concerning for anyone who has one because of not only the vast amount of information that we put in there about ourselves knowingly, but also the amount of information that is collected about us by our phones automatically without our necessarily knowing uh, in detail what all of that is. So that is, for example, real-time location data as our phones connect to cell phone towers, for example, that supply a map of everywhere we go, everywhere we've been um, in real time that then can be accessed later on. In addition, smartphones are also collecting data via the apps that we have installed. Those might collect something like location data. They also may collect other data from sensors in the phone, which now are capable of telling not only where we are geographically, but accelerometer data about how fast the phone is moving. So that could, for example, log how fast you're going in a car. There's a wide variety of information. And on top of all of that, of course, you've got the camera, the microphone on your phone um, that could be potentially used to collect 
voice or video information or snapshots of you without your knowledge, depending on the vulnerabilities that might be discovered in different applications. I do know a lot of people who believe their microphones are listening the whole time because they'll talk about something random and suddenly an ad will pop up on one of their social media feeds for the exact product they were talking about and they haven't Googled it or anything. You're absolutely correct about the seemingly suspicious coincidences that many people have reported around seeing ads pop up for something that they were just talking about ambiently. And uh, there's certainly a lot of suspicion, which has been denied here and there by applications such as Facebook with its messenger app for communications to deny that they're using the microphone for these purposes. And it seems like it can be difficult to determine conclusively whether that's true or not. And that, of course, puts encrypted messaging apps sort of forefront. People use those, um, assuming that no one will know what they're saying to people. How important is encryption when it comes to privacy? It, we've seen a real revolution in recent years in the usability of encryption software, particularly in terms of turning it on by default so that our conversations, for example, our communications are end-to-end -end encrypted, which means that nobody except you and I, as two people who are having a conversation, can legibly understand the communications that are being transmitted, and even the application developer, say Facebook for example, is not able to make sense of the communications that are being transmitted over its own servers. We've also seen the rise of encryption by default for our devices, for our smartphones, and increasingly for laptops as well. And this is important because it ensures that all of the vast array of information about us that we keep on our phones can now more easily be kept secure. There is some evidence to suggest that, at least in the United States where I live, smartphone thefts dropped after the encryption on devices such as iPhones and on Android was redone to make it more difficult uh, to get into those devices and extract readable data from them just by using a passcode. Because the reason that cell phone thieves would want to steal smartphones wasn't just for the resale value of selling this hunk of metal and plastic and glass. It was because if they could open up your phone because there was very little privacy protection on it or no passcode on it, then they would be able to pull, for example, uh, baking data off of it or go in and look in your emails and be able to get access to various accounts that are accessible from your smartphone. So I think the ability to just without even having to think about it, enjoy the benefits of encryption for devices uh, and for communications has been really important for protecting people's privacy. But of course, it's not just difficult for thieves, it's difficult for the authorities to get in. And that's caused some issues over the past few years. I suppose one of the most famous ones, one of the most famous examples was the authorities, the FBI, trying to get Apple to give them a backdoor um, into a suspected criminal's phone in 2016. Can you tell us briefly what happened there and why Apple and Tim Cook were so determined not to give the FBI a backdoor? So if you cast your mind back to around the end of 2015, at that time there was a mass shooting at a workplace by a man and his wife in Southern California. Another big story we're following tonight, the battle between Apple and the FBI. The tech giant says it's all about... Uh, they've made uh, a case to the court uh, that this, uh, this iPhone 
um, that they should have uh, access to that phone and that uh, Apple should disable the auto erase security feature on the phone. In that situation, one of the shooters had a work-issued iPhone that was found after he had been killed in a shootout with police. And because that iPhone was encrypted by default, the police were not able to get into it because, of course, the only person who knew the passcode to the phone was dead. After some snafus on the back end in the early phases of the investigation, the police had found themselves unable to sync that device to get the contents off of it. And the most recent backup of the device was over a week old. And so because the police believed that there might be relevant information on the phone that might suggest why this terror attack had happened. They got a court order issued to Apple in February of 2016 that commanded Apple to make changes to the security of that particular iPhone software. And there was a lot of uproar over this court order because of the potential security ramifications for having Apple write that code. Writing this code, this custom iOS software, would open up a Pandora's box by potentially introducing vulnerabilities that might then be able to uh, spread to other devices if that code were to escape or fall into the wrong hands. Whoever stole the NSA's cyber weapons then used them to launch ransomware attacks against hospitals. We also hospitals now know uh, that they came from state-sponsored actors and the Russian government had sponsored these actors. Members will be aware that the Australian Cyber Security Centre recently identified a malicious intrusion into the Australian Parliament, Parliament House. Because, of course, it's not just authorities who could use a backdoor, it's potentially cyber criminals. That's exactly right, Cyan. So we have seen instances before where backdoors that were intended only for use by law enforcement have been discovered and misused by malicious actors as well. And so some of the concern was that Apple would immediately have painted a huge target on its back if they had in the end been compelled to create this custom software because then you know every organized crime ring in the world would love to get their hands on that code because it would mean that they would be able to use that to force their way into anybody's device. And you can imagine how other governments might want to get their hands on that as well because there's concern when it comes to the tension over law enforcement's access to data not only about the kinds of criminals that I think many people would agree should be pursued um, but also that governments in some countries still criminalize particular religions, particular sexualities, other things that in liberal democracies like the US or Australia we might not agree are things that should be crimes. But if Apple had been forced to create this software in the United States to pursue an investigation of what at the time was the worst terror attack on US soil since September 11th, then of course every other government in the world, including those that do not have a stellar human rights record, would be demanding the same thing. This bill will make Australians less secure, it will threaten our tech industry and attacks our civil liberties. 
And it's interesting you do mention Australia because one, a recent law that passed back in uh, December 2018, the Assistance and As- Access Act, has been called the anti-encryption law. And there are sort of some allowances in there for authorities to compel a company to create a new technical way to access encrypted communications. Now, you probably know more about this than most Australians. What are the big legal challenges and what do they, what do they mean in the terms of this act? So the primary concern or one of the primary concerns that I have with the Assistance and Access Act, there are a few, but this is one of a number of pieces of legislation dealing with intelligence and national security that the parliament has passed in recent years, including the Data Retention Act of 2015, for example. Um, This latest act, the Assistance and Access Act, is problematic to me because it seems to be trying to let Australia's security agencies have their cake and eat it too when it comes to online security and device security. On the one hand, the main thrust of the act seems to be to try to force a very broad swath of providers, which could be telecommunications companies, could be companies such as Microsoft or Apple or Google, could be even apparently uh, anybody who provides free Wi-Fi, such as McDonald's, to make some sort of alterations to the security of their products or to change their offerings to the public when it comes to software and hardware. If the authorities serve a request on one of these covered providers, which is basically anybody, then that provider can be required to provide whatever technical assistance is necessary, including um, potentially solutions that might have the effect of weakening security for all users. Now, there was a lot of debate in the run-up to the passage of the Act in Parliament's last sitting day back in December over how to thread that needle in a way that would not require what's called a systemic vulnerability. Um, But I have a lot of doubt that it's possible Mm. to legislate that at all. I submitted several comments in writing to uh, the Parliamentary Committee that was evaluating the act back before it was passed, raising my concerns that there was really no way to effectively say we're going to compel private companies or anyone we serve a notice on to create some way of giving us access to unencrypted data, but without creating a systemic vulnerability or systemic weakness. My concern is that any in in a, this is an analog to the Apple versus FBI situation in that any one-off solution that might be created for a particular device or a particular account is necessarily going to wind up getting reused the next time the police come knocking for some other account for some other device and that that could end up escaping or it could have unintended consequences due to bugs in the solution that the provider comes up with for allowing access to law enforcement. Mm. There are other elements that I find troubling about it as well. For example, if you refuse to hand over your passcode and unlock your phone for the authorities, it used to be that that could carry a jail sentence of two years. Now that's been increased to five years. Or for serious offenses, terrorism offenses, for example, 10 years. So now we have a situation where people can be effectively threatened into opening up their phones for law enforcement for offenses that may carry a lighter penalty overall than the penalty that they are at risk of incurring simply for refusing to open up their phones. 
And how do the recent Australian Federal Police raids on um, journalists and the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, do you think that is a threat to the free press? Absolutely. I think that the expansion of Australia's national security laws and surveillance laws in recent years have created a situation that allows for agencies such as the Australian Federal Police to conduct what are considered to be raids that are at odds with the general international consensus on protecting press freedoms and to say what we did was lawful because Parliament passed laws in recent years that say that it's lawful. But I don't think that it is square with a free press to have uh, actual, you know, police members raiding the homes of journalists or raiding the headquarters of the ABC. Protection of the confidentiality of sources is one of the most fundamentally universally recognized tenets of press freedom. And there are so many big stories that never would have happened in Australia and elsewhere. And on top of that, making a culture of paranoia where it becomes ever harder for journalists to know whether they can effectively secure their notes, their data, that they can communicate with sources without thinking that maybe somebody's looking over their shoulder. All of these things together mean that recent legislation in Australia has created a very hostile environment for press freedom. And obviously you're extremely qualified to comment on these things. You've been researching this area for quite a long time, but you are based in the United States and this is Australian domestic policy. So why are you so interested in these Australian laws as an American? Well, there are a number of ways that Australian policy can touch upon the policy of other countries, including the United States. So for one thing, Australia and the United States are both part of what's called the Five Eyes Coalition of Countries, which also includes the UK, Canada, and New Zealand when it comes to uh, sharing of intelligence data and surveillance information. And on top of that, because there's been a debate, including through the Apple versus FBI dispute a couple of years ago, over what the proper policy in the United States should be vis-a-vis encryption and keeping encryption legal, the passage of the Assistance and Access Act potentially opens the door to a sort of domino effect that I am afraid might happen, where by passing this law, Australia may make it more feasible or palatable for a similar law to be passed in the United States or to be passed in Canada or to be uh, passed in New Zealand. So because Australia's law has a potential international ramification and potentially could provide a way for the United States to even maybe launder its own intelligence and surveillance and law enforcement investigations through Australia by using this law and these powers that are not available to the United States directly, domestically, there is an impact in the United States and other countries by Australia's legal regime. On top of that, because of the potential security ramifications of forcing companies in Australia to weaken the security of their products, security is a whole ecosystem. And so what undermines the security of a product or a device or an account in Australia or a service that's being used in Australia might potentially have ramifications for the security of users outside Australia as well, and that could also include the United States. So my concern has been not only for the potential impact on other countries' policies, including the United States when it comes to encryption law, but also the potential effect on the security of people around the world if Australia 
can require providers that basically have any users at all in Australia to undermine the security of their services. So what is the worst case scenario here? You know, the worst case scenario for me would be for this law to inspire similar laws across the Five Eyes, including in the United States, that might lead to a much more hostile legal environment for strong encryption. And by strong encryption, I mean encryption that not even um, the provider of the encryption, whether that's Apple or Google, for example, or Facebook, is able to undo or remove Encryption has been the best defense that we have for protecting all of the sensitive information, not only of just private individuals, but for protecting financial information, for protecting banking information, for protecting the security of all of our communications over the internet through web browsers, for protecting national security information against espionage and against foreign attacks. So... If the rest of the world follows Australia's lead, I think we could see a worldwide weakening of security just when we are already at the point where it is so difficult to maintain even half-decent security of our data and our communications. So that's what I'm afraid we might see happen in the worst case, thanks to other countries being inspired to pass similar or even worse legislation to the Assistance and Access Act. Right, so even though, yes, authorities could pass this law and catch a couple of criminals, it would come at the cost potentially of, you know, millions of other people's privacy and even, you know, threaten the security of something like um, finance system or the electronic grid. Is that right? That's my concern is that it could have these unanticipated spillover effects that I don't know that parliament really adequately accounted for. And just on your later submission about the Assistance and Access Act, you um, briefly mentioned the economic consequences. Um, What are they? What's happening with the economy in the Act? It will be interesting to see after the Act has been in effect for a while, Mm. say a year, whether Australian companies can report more concretely on what effect they can trace to it. Um, on their businesses. But already we have seen, for example, the head of Microsoft coming to Canberra and saying that Microsoft's customers are asking that their data get stored elsewhere because they're not comfortable having it stored in Australia anymore, given the assistance and access There's also the potential for economic harm if some companies' measures that they take in order to comply with a notice, if those measures backfire and do result in a security flaw, then that security flaw might end up leading to a data breach or other harm that will cause additional second-order types of economic harm to Australia and Australians. So where does all this end? I mean, should Australians be worried? I think Australians should be worried and they should be keeping track of what statements the Home Affairs Office makes or other parts of government make about how this law is being used. The act is so shrouded in secrecy in terms of the notices that go out and compliance with those notices that it's difficult to know whether we will ever have any idea really how it has been used and what kinds of security flaws may be created as a result. It is worthwhile for members of the public to write to their members of parliament and to voice their concern about the act and to make their voices heard. And just briefly to wrap up, how can people protect themselves um, and their cyber security? You know, what kinds of things can people be doing right now to, you know, 
try and stop cyber attacks or protect their privacy. Well, if you have a smartphone such as an Android phone or an iPhone, you definitely will want to set a strong passcode on there. Um, I would say at least six digits, potentially even more if you can remember so, that. So not one, two, three, four? <laughs> not one, two, three, four. Um, use a password manager for managing the passwords to all your various accounts. That's an easy one to do. There are some out there that are free, some uh, some cost money. I use one password, for example, and that helps generate strong passwords for your accounts so that you're not reusing the same one over and over again. Because if one of your accounts gets compromised, then attackers can try and use that and guess, oh, did she use the same password for her bank account? Did she use the same password for her email? So those are a couple of easy things to do just to protect your devices, to protect your accounts. Right. And I suppose looking forward, this is an issue that's only going to become more and more significant, isn't it? Because this is the way of the future. Everything is going to be connected to the internet or somehow be connected and online in the future. This is only going to become a more pressing issue as more and more devices get attached to the internet of things. Our cars are going to be internet connected. Our toothbrushes are going to be internet connected. Our light bulbs are internet connected. And so security flaws in all of these different previously dumb devices only add to the risks of insecure and poor cybersecurity, whether that is due to poor design or whether that's due to legal requirements. So as everything comes online, we're looking at a very challenging environment for providing good security. And it is unwise of governments to create disincentives to providing the best security possible in every product and every service. Wow. Well, thank you so much for your time and expertise. It's definitely a lot of food for thought. I feel like I've learned a lot in talking to you and um, we'll definitely keep an eye on the act and, and see what does happen here in Australia and around the world. Thanks, Ayan. It's a pleasure to be on the show. That was Rihanna Pfefferkorn, cybersecurity expert at Stanford University. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. That is your news fix for this week. Every week, we'll dig a little deeper and go behind the headlines. News Fix is produced by Seven West Media. Supervising producer is John Buck. Our executive producer is Nikki Hamilton. And the director of News and Public Affairs is Craig McPherson. I'm Cyan Doherty. Thanks for listening. Hold up. What was that? 
Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.